The Old Pilot's Plain Tales In the Box Sleepy-headed and bleary-eyed, I squint at my phone as it blares a so-called twinkle alarm call. It's the wee hours and the sun is still well below the horizon as I throw some clothes on and head off across country. I slurp coffee as I weave through the country lanes, trying to get my brain in order. For the past two weeks or so, I've been preparing for the next couple of days by diligently studying aircraft systems, procedures and emergency drills. Now it's time to jump one of those regular hurdles that every airline pilot faces, in my case twice a year, my recurrent simulator checks. Parking outside the huge simulator building, I sigh and head in to start something that I put on a par with a root canal job, or perhaps having to clean out a blocked sewer. I can, of course, have sympathy with those enthusiasts who would love to spend a few hours in a zero-flight time, full-motion simulator that gives such a realistic impression of flying a real airliner. New pilots can do all their training on one, and the first time they get into a real aircraft, it will be full of passengers. What could be more fun than having a go at doing a commercial pilot's job? For real. Or certainly as real as technology could possibly make it. As I sign into the smart building, I can see down the long hall that houses the simulators. Seven or eight of the large white boxes stand tall on shining hydraulic jacks. They trail a multitude of umbilical cords that power the electrics and feed back to the banks of computers that copy the characteristics of an aircraft so closely that every nuance of flying can be practised. The latest generation of wraparound visual systems are near photographic in quality and every detail is displayed, from the cars winding down the roads to the rain whipping across the puddles of a drenched apron. Our examiner collects us and leads us up to a classroom, and we sit in comfort whilst being gently roasted. One of the first things we do is hand over our air transport pilot's licences. They won't be of any use to us again unless we pass the next two days' sessions. The briefing takes about 90 minutes, and we get a general idea of how today will be conducted. This routine will start with the captain as pilot flying for a flight from JFK to London Heathrow. A full start-up will be conducted in LVO conditions for a limited visibility operations departure. The emergency scenario will be followed by a manoeuvre check for the first officer to cover all the mandatory line proficiency check items. Day 2 will be a repeat with the first officer starting as pilot flying, but in Cat 1 conditions, and then we'll cover the captain's LPC items. The routine finishes with three FST, that's Flight Simulator Training, items. Every six months we get a suggested list of study subjects, which this time included LVO procedures, the engines, autopilot and flight director systems, stall warning and stability augmentation devices, IFARTO, that's engine failure after takeoff, OEI ILSs, one engine inoperative instrument landing systems, two GA, go around and land, fire drills, smoke and fire, fuel dumping and incapacitation. The items are chosen so that, remembering we get simulator sessions twice a year, all the aircraft systems are covered on a three-year cycle. 
Once the basics are out of the way, we go on to a training brief that includes a variety of subjects, such as emergency PAs, what we should say, the situation is under control, and what we shouldn't say, oh my god, we're all going to die. We cover the list of PAs we make to the cabin crew in various emergency situations to either prepare them or stand them down. We discuss changes made to our evacuation procedures and talk through the evacuation of the Emirates 777 at Dubai last year. Some of our bad habits on the radio are mentioned, and we are reminded how it should be done. Finally, we spend some time discussing the Airbus flight laws, how they work and what happens when they change, ending up with the recent changes to TCAS with version 7.1. By that time, I'm just about ready to go home, but the gleaming white box awaits like a very attractive rat trap. Over the retractable bridge we troop, and inside, to be faced with a view that is very familiar. The pointy end is identical to my everyday workplace. The aircraft faces a terminal building, with passengers passing the windows and workers wandering around below. Behind our pilot's seats, however, is the captain's seat from the Starship Enterprise. The examiner sits in this throne, surrounded by displays and controls, most of which are marked Make His Life Miserable or Make His Life Even More Miserable. The dreaded clipboard sits on the chair, with boxes to be marked for every conceivable manoeuvre. Just our cockpit inspection has the following items to be checked. Document inspection, information gathering, cockpit scan, de-ice procedures, anti-ice procedures, EFB, that's electronic flight book, FMGC, flight management guidance computer, FMS, flight management system, and navigation setup, comms setup, ECAM, or electronic centralized aircraft monitoring, and QRH, quick reference handbook, use, resilience, altimetry, Navigation, Accuracy Check, Contingency Planning, Interaction with Agencies, Crew Management, Time Management, and that's before we even start with the first checklist. Today's briefing has me a little concerned. Weather will be low visibility at JFK and airfields past Boston North, and the first Cat 1 airfield south will be Philly, some 135 miles away. The longest Cat 3 capable runway at JFK is 31 right at only 8,500 feet and straight after takeoff we will be too heavy to stop on it since it's wet. If we get a fire after takeoff that won't extinguish, we'll be faced with a very difficult decision. We could land overweight and take a burning aircraft off the end of the runway. We could divert with the possibility that the engine fire will burn the wing off before we can get to Philly, or we could try dumping fuel to quickly reduce weight, with the chance that the burning engine might ignite the fuel as it's jettisoned, with all the inherent risks that would bring. As we prepare for departure, briefing the additional problems that low visibility gives us, my mind is working through many possible nightmare scenarios. The pushback complete, we start engines whilst we watch the tug move away. Every detail is replicated. The visibility is as low as we can accept, and taxiing is difficult on an airfield not renowned for its great signage. 
Now we get a runway change. We need new performance figures and a new departure, and most importantly, to remember that this runway has an emergency turn to help us remain clear of Manhattan should we get an engine failure. We take assistance from ground radar, but interpret I see you past Hotel Bravo as being past Hotel Bravo. What the examiner, playing ATC, meant to say was a beam Hotel Bravo, so we take a wrong turn. Not quite lost in the fog, but pretty pissed, we finally end up at the runway. I brace myself for the expected worst case and open up for takeoff. We trundle off, and as soon as I start raising the nose, the runway disappears completely in the fog. We climb out into the thick cloud and fly the departure. Nothing happens. We continue to the north, up past 20,000 feet, and nothing happens. Finally, a quiet ding, and the ECAM displays a number one FADEC fault. The digital engine controller has stopped sending data, and all the number one engine instruments show amber crosses. We know it's still working as the generator, hydraulic pump and bleeds show normal indications, but nothing else. I call operations over the sat phone and speak to the engineers. Yes, they say we see the same. What about the lack of monitoring, I ask? Well, you should be fine. If anything goes out of limits, it should bring up a separate warning as they run through different channels. We discuss it and elect to continue towards London, but the examiner decides he can't waste time, so forces our hand by giving the engine low oil pressure. The warning dutifully appears and we shut down number one. We can still get across the Atlantic on three engines, at least as far as Shannon, but now operation tells us to kindly get our asses back to JFK. We guess the scenario is taking a little long. Now we face a one-engine inoperative low-visibility landing at JFK, but after dumping enough fuel, we can stop OK. The weather is right on limits for a Cat 3B approach, and that's the best we can do, but as we head down the slope, another little ding advises me that one of our radio altimeters has failed. The auto land degrades to Cat 2, and the RVRs, a measure of the visibility, don't allow that, so after a very quick mini-brief, I call the go-around. We fly the missed approach, levelling at 3,000 feet, and examine our options. Unless the weather improves, we're going to have to divert. Halfway through our discussion, the examiner decides he's seen enough and calls a halt. A sim reset puts us back on the ground, ready for my compatriot in the right-hand seat to have a go. It's murky, but no longer low visibility, and he starts our second takeoff. Around a hundred knots, two things happen simultaneously. An engine fails, and my first officer dies. Taking control, I bring the aircraft to a halt, and use the code to get the cabin crew to the flight deck with medical gear. I secure the engine and let both the passengers and air traffic know what is happening. We need medical assistance or by the look of him, an undertaker, and prepared a taxi to the nearest parking position. Another sim reset, and on this takeoff we get the loud, but not entirely unexpected bang at our V1 decision speed as a critical engine fails. 
My capable first officer is doing the flying, and he handles the swing and subsequent rotation well. He eases the limping beast off the runway, trims it out, and climbs away. The failed engine catches fire, so we work together to shut it down and extinguish the flames. When we get a chance to catch breath, we decide it's best to go back to JFK, but it's never easy, because as we start back, both the autopilot and autothrottles fail, so he must now hand-fly the approach. He does a great job, but at the decision height we're still in cloud with no sign of the runway. He initiates a go-around and we clean up for another attempt. This time the ILS isn't available, but the weather has magically got better. We set up for an RNAV approach, and after I click my red shoes together three times, the autopilot and autothrust fix themselves. After a very nice approach to land, day one is over. Smiles all round, we tidy up the box and after a chat go our separate ways with a plan to meet even earlier the next day. I'm in bed by eight and wake to another cold, dark morning. Today's a bit more relaxed for me as my first officer's in the hot seat first. His scenario starts well, but soon after we begin our climb out, we get a call from the cabin crew saying that there's smoke coming up from the floor of the passenger cabin. Shortly after, the bells start ringing, and the red master warning illuminates the avionics bay, which sits directly under the flight deck, also has smoke. We don the deadly oxygen masks, which make us look like John Hurt out of the Alien movie. Communication immediately becomes twice as hard, and the devices suck out half our brains. By now, the real smoke that the simulator churns out is becoming thick and gloopy. I start the smoke and fumes drill, which is a memory item. A good job, because I can hardly see my hand, let alone read the checklist. Isolating all the non-essential electrics, I turn off the pressurization system, open the flow valves fully, and introduce ram air into the aircraft. We discuss the merits of dropping the passenger oxygen masks, but I'm not keen to put pure oxygen into a possible fire. Five minutes later, my first officer has the aircraft on the ground and we break hard to a stop. I immediately initiate an emergency evacuation and we pause, ready for the sim to reset again. With most of the boxes ticked, I just need an engine failure at V1, followed by my three-engine ILS to go around and an RNAV to land. The testing all done, we relax and take our headsets off. We have a good hour and a half to practice some handling. We run through some fly-by-wire flight law reversions, practicing handling the aircraft in alternate and direct law, as well as mechanical backup. We explore the margins of the flight envelope, seeing how the aircraft protects itself at both high and low speed, and then how we must protect the aircraft when those systems have failed. We both practice stall recoveries, noting that opening up four powerful engines too early can pitch the aircraft straight back into a stalled condition. In between, our examiner tries to crash us into other airliners, and we do our best to complete various complicated TCAS manoeuvres. Finally, it's off to Washington to do some circling approaches in a strong and turbulent wind. With it wound up too severe, I'm being jolted off my seat and I'm glad I strapped in tight. A few more circuits and we're done. Our regular simulator sessions are always a trial, and none of us look forward to it. But we all recognise the need to practice our skills. 
Our predecessors' mistakes are often written in the blood of their innocent passengers, and unless we continue to strive to learn from those mistakes, those deaths will have been in vain. There is a reason that aviation has become the safest form of travel on the planet. Everyone in the industry knows that we must continually work to maintain our safety record, no more so than the pilots who are well aware that their human failings are often the weakest link.